You've got to be quite serious about religion in order to be an atheist. This does seem to me like a very frightening situation. Literally to go home is to face ground zero. So there's a lot Christians could do besides making a lot of noise and waving a lot of flags. Welcome to Life and Faith, I'm Simon Smart. In May 2019, we featured an interview with Andrew Browning, an Australian missionary doctor who'd worked in Africa for almost two decades. Now, Andrew's work has focused on healing women who suffered obstetric fistulas, which is a debilitating condition caused by obstructed childbirth. Now, the interview was disturbing for sure, but also incredibly inspiring. After we aired that episode, Patrick Kennedy got in touch with CPX. He listened to the episode and it gave him an idea. Patrick Kennedy is on the line. Tell us what happened next. Well, I was up uh, around the, the uh, dinner table, got up from the dinner table and decided to wash up and thought, what am I going to listen to this evening for on, the, on the podcast? And I uh, pulled up the Centre for Public Christianity and I saw the episode called A Missionary Doctor and I thought, oh, I'll have a listen to that. And I'm glad I did, because uh, 30 minutes later, I was walking away in tears and uh, raced into my wife and I said, I've got to help this guy, we've got to help this guy, and we've got to help the Barbara May Foundation. They are doing such great work. So I got on to them the next morning, uh, rang them and was put in touch with Dr. Andrew Browning and offered to do some work with him, uh, some media training. As we did the media training, I said to him, you need a book, Andrew. You really need a book. And he said, I don't have time nor do, do I have the, the skills to do that. He said, but you've written a few books. Can you help me? And I was a bit reluctant at first, and I thought, yeah, okay. I've never ghostwritten a book before. I've written a few other smaller books. And uh, Pam McMillan came on board, and uh, it's given birth to um, a doctor in Africa. Well, it's a fabulous book. And what else would there be better to do when you're washing up than listening to Life and Faith? You've obviously had that experience too. That's a great way to pass half an hour or even an hour if you want to listen to two in a row. <laughs> now, um, just tell us a bit more about when it first hits you, that story. What was it that had you almost in tears and inspired to really get a bit more involved? Well, I think it's um, Andrew's humility, first of all. He could be a wealthy obstetrician here in Australia. Uh, he could be having a very cushy life, but he's decided not to do that. He goes over to Africa and works in places, which he talks about on the podcast, where the temperature is 50 degrees every day, the hottest inhabited place on earth. And his desire is to just help the women of Africa. He's led by his faith, uh, and he's following that through to the nth degree to help the women. Was it hard to get a publisher on board for this? You went through Pan McMillan, I see. Yeah, we did go through Pan McMillan. It's always difficult to find a publisher very quickly. In my case, it usually takes me eight goes to find the right publisher. But on this occasion, Pam McMillan jumped on board after one telephone call. So it's a remarkable testament for Andrew's story. That's Pat Kennedy. Now, given that story emerging out of life and faith, which I have to say we were all pretty happy to hear, and the release of the book, A Doctor in Africa, we thought we should revisit the original episode for you. So here it is, Andrew Browning's story. Now, warning, before we get into today's episode, that some of the content is a bit graphic. There are what you might call explicit medical details in here, but also some descriptions of violence that really are quite distressing. This one's probably not appropriate for small kids. That's not to say that this isn't a totally uplifting interview as well. 
I sat down with a guy called Andrew Browning. He's a doctor. He's a really nice guy. About midway through the conversation, I was like, I think this man might also be a saint. He really wouldn't want me to say that. But, you know, a saint wouldn't, right? (laughs) I believe the same things that he does, but he's made some radical choices as a result of those beliefs that, I don't know, I just really admired him. I think that probably comes through in the interview. Yeah, well, let's not give away too many spoilers yet. Let's jump straight in. Now, most of us probably remember more or less what we wanted to be at the age of six. We have these dreams and aspirations. I know I, I did. What did you want to be, Simon? I was super keen to be an astronaut. I used to love, <laughs> Achievable goals. <laughs> well, I used to love reading about space travel. I was so into it. And at that point, I hadn't really factored in how terrible at maths I am or my claustrophobia. You don't know these things when you're six. No, and at that point, <laughs> it didn't, didn't hinder my dreams. Andrew Browning developed a very different kind of ambition as a kid. Um, at the age of six, um, for a while, I wanted to own a fish and chip shop. Mm-hmm. That was my great aspiration, and go out fishing during the day and cook them up and serve them at night. But then um, I grew up in a church family, was going to Sunday school, and I remember sitting on the, the floor at Sunday school and listening to a missionary who had come back from Tanzania. And she was sitting there teaching us some Swahili words and talking to us about all sorts of exciting things about being a nurse uh, in Africa. And at that moment, I thought, oh, I'd love to be a, a doctor. My father was a doctor. Uh, love to be a doctor and go over and work in Africa. So from that moment, I had in the back of my mind that I would be a missionary doctor at some stage. And along each step of the way, up until now, um, 40-something years later, um, that's where I am. So is that kind of a thing that you thought as a child and then forgot about for a while until you're making new decisions? Or that was kind of a, as you're growing up, you were like, this is where I'm headed? Uh, not, not a strict, this is where I'm headed, but yes, this is where I probably should head. But um, it wasn't until I was about 14 that I really had my conversion experience, I suppose you call it, and um, asked Christ into my life. And I thought, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to serve God to the best of my abilities. Maybe missionary work is the thing to do. And as a junior medical student, I went to Tanzania, actually to the hospital where this Sunday school missionary was from. And it was at the beginning of the Rwandan genocide back in 93. And we had literally 20,000 refugees um, from Rwanda just arrive on our doorstep overnight. Immense suffering, people dying you know, every day. And as a young man, I thought, yeah, this is a great way to serve God with the gifts that he's given me to reach out to people that don't have anything. And so from that moment, that's where I said, this is where I'm going to go. So then it was steps on the way uh, as a junior doctor being in Ethiopia, getting offered a job at a place called the Fistula Hospital and then having to do further studies to be able to take up my position there. So happening to be there on the borders of Rwanda at this particular moment, like that's in a way an incredibly unlikely moment to be doing that. Mm. Um, Was that a really traumatic experience for you? Was that a really formative thing in your path? Um, Yeah, for a young guy that's... Grew up in Barrel, had a very um, lovely, idyllic childhood, and um, to be exposed to that amount of violence and suffering, I guess wasn't so much traumatic. It was, my goodness, we've, we've got to do something in the world to help people in these situations. And so, yes, it was formative. It helped to um, hone my desires to serve and uh, commit my life to helping those less fortunate than ourselves. You're doing a medicine degree that could lead to quite a lucrative 
quite comfortable life here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Why did that not, or did that appeal to you? Was that kind of a difficult decision to not go down that path? Um, yeah, I get asked that quite a lot, actually. And I think behind the question is, why did you give up a comfortable lucrative career and have lots of money in Australia is perhaps an assumption that that's one of the great purposes or meanings of life. (laughs) And if it is, then I've failed miserably. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't see it as it is. I think um, as a Christian, God's called us to serve and to help and to love. I mean, his greatest command is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And as a Christian, that's how I want to live. So money, if it comes by, is not a bad thing, um, but it's not a primary thing. And if it comes secondarily to serving God, fantastic. And using the ambitions that he's given me to serve God, like medicine, fantastic. But um, in my case, it hasn't. And that's fantastic too. Is there an element of not digging too deep psychologically here necessarily, but um, within your family, what's kind of valued what you grew up thinking was important because your other members of your family, your extended family, have been involved in work like this. Um, mm-hmm. Your aunt, is is that right? Yeah, I've got an aunt who's been living in Ethiopia. She's a completely remarkable woman. She's quite the black sheep of the family, really. She's <laughs> um, been in the Horn of Africa since 1974, and she's given up more than anyone I know. I mean, literally, she owns the, a couple of dresses, a pair of flip-flops. She lives in a house in the desert, married into this tribal group called the Afar. They're a nomadic group in the desert area of Ethiopia, the hottest inhabited place in the world. And um, she looks after one and a half million of them. She now employs 750 Afars, and she takes development to this area where no one has taken development before. And so um, yeah, she's, she's a remarkable lady, and she was an inspiration for me. As a junior doctor, I went to Ethiopia to work with my aunt in the desert area, and we were just wandering around the desert with camels, you know, treating people under trees and shrubs and things, and in 50-degree heat. Um, but I also visited the fistula hospital while I was in Ethiopia at that time and met Catherine Hamlin, and she offered me a job. And I thought, well, sitting under the, a tree in 50-degree heat or <laughs> <laughs> living in a suburb. It's Yes, it, it was a more attractive option at that stage. I mean, I remember one night in the Afar area, we were traipsing around 50 degrees plus, and they sleep inside these little dome huts, and at night it cools off a bit, but not terribly much, but the 10 of them will sleep in these little dome huts, and they'd have a fireplace in there and because they think it would get cool at night, so it was just so unbearably hot I'd sleep <laughs> outside. And so um, you'd have to sleep with a guard with a gun because the hyenas get quite close. So every now and then you're woken up with a gunshot and this hyena yelping off in the distance, and then bit later that night a, a camel was bellowing just a few meters away from my head and gives birth and I get splattered all with this amniotic <laughs> fluid so I thought um Addis Ababa working at the fistula hospitals does sound a lot more attractive <laughs> than yeah. working with my I aunt mean, in the desert. Both quite different <laughs> options to what yeah. you would have done here. <laughs> in Australia yeah. It was 1993 when Andrew first went to Africa as a medical student. He visited regularly after that and eventually moved to Ethiopia. He studied theology in Sydney And the Ethiopian government required him to have his obstetrics and gynecology degree before they'd give him a work permit. So he got that too. In 2001, he started working with Catherine Hamlin at the Fistula Hospital in Addis Ababa. Now, you might have heard of her. She's an Australian doctor who went to Ethiopia with her husband in 1959. 
and founded the world's only medical centre dedicated exclusively to providing free care for women who suffered these terrible childbirth injuries. Catherine Hamlin has been doing this work for a staggering 60 years. The New York Times has described her as a 21st century Mother Teresa. Andrew worked with her for five years, then moved with his wife and newborn baby to a remote area in the north of the country to set up a fistula unit there. Wanting to bring this kind of help to the rest of Africa, beyond Ethiopia, the family then went to Tanzania. In total, he spent at least 17 years as a missionary doctor in Africa. I asked him to explain what this work is. What is a fistula? A heads up that this part of the interview is not pleasant. A fistula is um, just another word for a hole. So doctors try and speak in confusing <laughs> language so no one can understand terms. it, but it's, <laughs> literally it means a hole. And the hole we're talking about is a hole between the bladder and the birth canal in a lady, and sometimes the rectum and the birth canal, again, in a lady, of course. And it happens during labor. It's caused by labor. So anywhere in the world, about one in 20 women will get into what's called obstructed labor meaning the baby's getting stuck. So the mother's pelvis is too small, the baby's too big, or the baby's coming out the wrong way. For whatever reason, the labour is getting stuck and the baby's not fitting out. And here you would go and have a caesarean. Yeah, so here you're being monitored in labour by a midwife um, or a nurse, and then they'll diagnose that, they'll call a doctor, and they'll do a caesarean. So you've got a safe mother, safe baby. But in most of rural Africa, there's no doctors, there's no nurses, there's no uh, midwives, there's no hospitals, there's no health centers. So the vast majority of women still deliver at home. So for example, where my aunt lives in the Afar area, because there's no doctors and midwives, one in 12 women will die trying to have a baby during their lifetime. And it would be the same here if we didn't have doctors and midwives and nurses and hospitals. Yeah, we kind of forget this. Yeah. So if you get into obstructed labor, if you're in the in the villages of Africa, and then you'll stay in labor. And the ladies with a fistula have been in labor for three, four, five, seven, even up to 10 days. So most of these ladies simply die. But if they survive, the child inside them dies because a, a baby can't survive that long labor. And they eventually deliver a stillborn child. They're usually unconscious by this stage because they've been in labor for four or five days. And it takes them about two days to regain consciousness. And when they do regain consciousness, they find that they're leaking uncontrollably from their bladder and also their bowel. Because they've been in labor for so long, the baby's head's been pressing against the mother's pelvis and all the tissues between, tissues of the bladder, birth canal, rectum, birth canal, all die. And that comes away and they're left with a fistula or a hole between the bladder, birth canal, rectum, birth canal. So they're leaking urine and feces continually. The husbands divorce them, they're ostracized, they're ashamed. They won't go to the market or to the church or to the mosque or mix it with anybody because they're ashamed of the way they smell. So 40% will try and commit suicide um, with this condition. This is horrific and easily fixed, is that right? Not easily fixed. It depends on the, on the extent of the damage. <clears throat> so sometimes the whole of the birth canal is destroyed. The whole of the urethra, which contains all the muscles that holds the urine in, are destroyed. So you need to make lots of new structures. So new urethra, new rearranged muscles to hold the urine in, new birth canal. So it can be quite extensive, difficult surgery. And there's very few people in the world that do the major fistula repairs. There's less than 10. 
Um, but the simple ones, which account for only about 50% of cases, are fairly straightforward. And you can repair them within sometimes minutes and the lady will be cured. But getting the patient to the hospitals is difficult. Um, some ladies have been suffering for a fistula in isolation for 40, 50 years, wow. not knowing that they could be cured. And um, they come, they're cured with a operation and then go home at least a few years of dignity to, to live out. Wow. And how common is this in terms of she'd be the only woman in her village, the only woman anyone knows within her community who this has happened to? We don't really know uh, how many patients there are out there because so, they're so hard to find because they're often hidden away. But we estimate, or well, the WHO, World Health Organization, estimate there's about 2 million ladies in the world with this and about fifty to 100,000 new cases occurring every year. So the global capacity for treating patients at the moment is about 16,000. Um, so we're well behind what we need to do. When I first started doing fistula surgery, the global capacity was around 3,000, so we have pushed things forward, um, but we've still got a long way to go. So most women that come, they do know of someone else who's had this condition, and they usually are our best advocates for finding more patients. So they know they can be cured, they go home cured, so they will tell their other people that they know in the villages, and they, they come. But it is preventable, and that's the, the issue. I mean, the world's first fistula hospital was actually opened in New York in 1855 because there was lots of fistulas occurring back in America back then. Right. And uh, Europe and Australia. Uh-huh. But um, they've been eradicated because everyone can have access to safe obstetric care. You wouldn't get that far. No, you won't get that far in labor. So that first fistula hospital was closed over 100 years ago. And it's now changed hands. It's now the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Manhattan. <laughs> there you go. So if you go, I've been to the hotel. <laughs> little if you go, known history. Yes, if you go into the basement of the hotel, you'll uh, see a little plaque saying this is the site of the world's first fistula hospital. Oh, you've been there? Yeah, Bit of a pilgrimage? There. Yeah, yeah. Took, took the photo. <laughs> I asked Andrew if he could tell me about a particular patient of his to give us an idea of the real people behind these huge numbers. He struggled to choose one. He's met more than 11,000 fistula patients, he says, and personally operated on 7,000 of them. And they've meant a lot to him. One that um, stands out in my mind at the moment, this young girl, she was married probably about the age of 14. She doesn't know her age. But um, probably at the age of 15, she was giving birth in her little village in southern Tanzania. And the nearest hospital was 120 kilometres away, so none of them had been to school, so they had no education to know what a normal labour should be uh, and didn't know how or where to get help, nor could they afford it. So little Ngolo, she got into obstructed labour, and after a full day of labour, she hadn't delivered. Another day passed, two days of labour, and the husband was now beside himself, thinking, you know, something's wrong with my wife, I, how can I help? He was illiterate, but had the idea that if he boiled a basin of water and put her feet into the boiling water, it would stimulate her uterus to contract. He did this for two more days, and uh, she still hadn't delivered. She was now unconscious, and on the fifth day, she delivered a stillborn child. It took her two days uh, to regain consciousness, but when she did, she found that she was leaking uncontrollably from her bladder and her bowel. So the husband divorced her. She went to live with her mother. The mother put her in a little mud room at the edge of the family compound. And unable to walk because of burns on her feet, she um, stayed in that room for 18 months. 
She was found by a mission and brought to that hospital 120 kilometres away and operated on three times in that hospital, um, but wasn't cured. So she was found by our outreach workers and brought to me um, last year. And we operate under spinal anaesthetic, and so they're awake during the operation. And Angolo was so given up any hope that she could ever be cured that she just sobbed uncontrollably throughout the whole operation. She was thankfully cured. Two weeks later, we took out the catheter, and she was so delighted. She just had a smile from ear to ear. She said, look, I never want to meet another man again. I'm never going to be remarried. <laughs> I'm going to go home and go to school and start a new life. Oh, wow. So I chased her up um, a few months ago, and she is back in her village going to school and um, starting a new life and still very happy. Oh, that's wonderful. Andrew's worked all over Africa, and not all the injuries that he and his colleagues have treated were the result of obstructed labour. In Congo, working there in the wars, um, Sierra Leone, Somalia, um, all these, South Sudan, all these horrible, difficult places where women just suffer uh, so much. And the Congo is probably the worst. I had quite a number of ladies there, you know, gang raped by 10 soldiers, then a, a gun put in their vagina and shot, um, to gave me the fistula, or even raped again, 10, 15 soldiers, whatever, pregnant, cut open while she's alive, baby ripped out of her. Uh, left for dead, and they, she survived remarkably and we came to us and we were able to cure her and fix her. But just the amount of suffering that women go through around the world is absolutely extraordinary. But um, it's interesting, that lady that um, that was raped then shot um, in her birth canal, uh, she was just so happy when I met her. I mean, I asked her, how on earth can you be so full of happiness when you've been through such suffering and here she was in hospital she said I, I know I've been through suffering but God's brought me people that can help me all along the way and um, she was cured and she gave thanks to God for that so tremendous strength of character that is uh, completely inspiring uh, from these women. Yeah these remarkable women mm. how do you cope with seeing that level of suffering and that's not just the natural dangers of childbirth, but this is what humans do to other humans. Oh, it's awful. It's just man's, I mean, just the old phrase, man's inhumanity to man, and it's what all of us are capable of if given in the, the right situations. I mean, the doctors I was working with in Congo were just shaking their heads. They were so ashamed of their, their fellow countrymen. Um, but, I mean, we can see it from Europe and what's happened there in the past. I mean, everyone can do the same given the right circumstances. How do I cope? Um, yeah, I don't know. I've never really thought about it. You just <laughs> focus on, you, know, you get your strength every, each day from God. Um, you begin each day by prayer and reading God's word. I mean, without that, without that faith, I think I would have given up years ago. It's hard emotionally. It's hard physically. Um, you know, it ruins your career, but um, that's not your motive for, for doing <laughs> anything. Um, yeah, but it's just God's faith in God that sustained me. And it's being able to help those women that sustains you too. I mean, each day you see women just cured and absolutely delighted and giving thanks to God for that cure, which um, is so addictive and so rewarding. You're listening to Life and Faith, and we're bringing you a conversation with Andrew Brown, who was a missionary doctor in Africa for 17 years. That's a term that raises hackles in some quarters, missionary doctor, or just missionary. A few years back, Slate published an article by the journalist Brian Palmer about the prominent role missionary doctors were playing in combating the Ebola crisis in West Africa. 
He talked about his own discomfort as an atheist with the reality of this, that a lot of health care on the ground in Africa is done by missionaries and by the churches. And he said, I'm not altogether proud of this bias. I'm just trying to be honest. It's great that these people are doing God's work, but do they have to talk about him so much? Palmer concludes in that article that, hey, even if I'm not comfortable with this link between missionary work by Christians and healthcare in Africa, well, if the investment in secular medicine really isn't there, then surely it's a lot better than nothing. I asked Andrew about this distinction. You know, what difference does it make to be a missionary doctor? Surely being a doctor is being a doctor. I've been on the ground in Africa for most of the last 20 years, really, and um, I kind of categorize people into these volunteers that come like missionaries into into three groups and those they come for altruistic reasons um, and work there as an optician and gynecologist I've never seen anyone last more than about two years uh, they give up um, on their altruistic inclinations <laughs> and, because uh, it's just, it's the just need so is hard too overwhelming well it's just the... hard too and the amount you give up too is hard and the, the mm. frustrations the obstacles you get from the government you never know from day to day if you're going to have your visa renewed and kicked out by the the government, and they have to renew that every year. Um, mm. There's just obstacles and obstructions to whatever you do. You really need to be determined, and unless you've got s- perhaps a higher calling, it's very hard to, to keep going. Mm. But then there's those l- people that come with big organisations like the UN or something like that. So they're the career workers, and they get paid a, a fortune. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, they um, really make a good okay. living for themselves. So. Um, there's, and they have very comfortable lives. Um, yeah, big houses, big cars. Kids going to big expensive schools. So they're not in rural areas. No, no, okay. you don't see them on the ground. They'll give out money sometimes to people right. actually doing it on the ground because they don't have any programs on the ground actually themselves by their own employees. They just distribute the funds to people that are actually doing the work on the ground. Hopefully, like us. And then the third group is the missionaries. And then you'll find them in the remote places, living like the people, learning the language, um, earning nothing and and serving the people. And it's tremendous encouragement, but it's estimated that in Africa, the missions and uh, churches um, account for 50% of healthcare for the whole of Africa. Wow. Yeah, so they're doing a tremendous amount of work. So more than the governments of the world, UN, all put together, it's done by the church. And 25% of all healthcare for Africa is done by the Catholic Church alone. And similar proportions for education. There's church schools, mission schools, Catholic schools, all over the place. And if you want to go to a good hospital or a good school, then you go to the mission one. That reality can make a lot of people uncomfortable. People think about missionaries as sort of a colonial era um, thing. And a lot of people would be surprised to hear that you know, missionaries are so active in Africa now. How is it not a kind of colonialist white people come in and help indigenous peoples. Well, there's more missionaries coming from Africa now to other African countries and places like Europe. So um, it's a reverse (laughs) (laughs) missionary thing that we've got now. And working on the ground, people are so grateful for missionaries. Um, Pretty well all the fistula work in Africa is done by Christians, um, even in the government hospitals. So for the example, the big National Hospital in Kenya, which is a government hospital. We run a big um, fistula camp there every year and treat 160 women in the in the camp, and that's all run by Christians. I find working as a missionary a lot easier than if I was just coming in, say, as a secular worker, because often those workers only have money with uh, their staff as the common language, and so when you're working cross culturally, it's very difficult to bridge all these 
cultural misunderstandings and um, where the cultures don't meet. Money is kind of a, a leveller, but that produces all sorts of corruption and difficulties. Uh, whereas if you're a missionary, you have faith as a common denominator with your staff, even if they're not Christians, but you bring your work back to biblical principles. So we've built hospitals and run them. And um, I mean, some of our staff are Muslim, some of them are anima, some of them don't have a faith, which is very, very rare in Africa, I might add. Mm. Um, but I mean, we all respect each other and um, we respect the foundation of the organisation, which is the Bible and biblical principles. So we have that as our text to run our organization as a common language. And I think um, the Christian message bridges all cultures. And the Christian message is that Christ died for all and loves all. And there are the church in Africa is growing and its churches are being planted all the time. And it's not coming from missionaries. I mean, it initially did, but it's coming from the African peoples themselves. Obviously, Christians and the church have not always lived up to those principles of Mm. kind of service and love of neighbor. Mm. Have you seen ways that missionaries or Christian people on the ground have sometimes made things worse? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the, the church is far from perfect. The biggest reason why missionaries come home is conflict with other missionaries. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so people are still human, although we are forgiven by Christ. They're still human. Yeah, and none of us are, are perfect. But you've been naive to think that those sort of issues don't happen in secular organizations as well. People are still people there. And it's interesting that the donor organizations like the EU or US or whatever, they don't give freely to these countries. They give with conditions. Um, which can be seen as worse than colonization, really, or worse than the interpretation of missionaries manipulating. I mean, they go down there and say, you must have a democratic election or you must give gay people rights, which is totally against all their cultures, uh, whether you agree with that or not. But they're putting their Western values onto these nations that it's not their values, for example. And so the democratic elections that they supposedly hold always end up in violence and always people are killed. And they only do it because the Western nations are are forcing them to do it. So um, So it's still really complicated. Oh, it's very complicated. In terms of practicing medicine in quite a different culture to here in Australia, were there differences that you saw and maybe positive differences in terms of the way that people see mortality and suffering and the way that they cope with um, mm. life in those places? Yeah, there's, um, there's a vast difference, to be honest. Um, I remember telling people in Australia, you know, they've got cancer or, you know, you've got a life-threatening condition and the immediate reaction was, no, no, you're wrong or give me a second opinion that can't be true or they're angry or, you know, um, Whereas if you do that in Africa, it's much more, oh, okay, sure, um, that my time is up. I mean, they're much more attuned to, to death and um, accepting of suffering as part of life. So they, they see it every day. And it's interesting, too, the big difference um, between developed world and developing world, if you want to call them that, um, or the m- minority world, which is us, and the majority world, which is places like Africa, the big difference is here where we don't expect suffering and we get angry about suffering as we use suffering as an excuse not to believe in God. But if you go into places like Tanzania, Ethiopia, Rwanda, where they're facing danger, suffering, real suffering, physical suffering each day and, and very real danger of death um, from childbirth, I've, you rarely meet anyone who doesn't believe in God. Um, they see 
suffering and um, they want a better world and their hope for a be- something better is in a faith, whether it be Islam, whether it be Christianity, something um, is trying to lift them out from the, this suffering in this world. Whereas in Australia, we're as close as you'll get in this world to heaven and um, yeah, we're uh, neglecting God. Um, but it's a good thing that there's less suffering, right? That there's we a great don't thing face, less and suffering. that's what you're kind of yeah, working towards right. in Africa as well. How mm. do you reconcile those? Well, things? Christ calls us to to care for the needy and care for the poor, so I'm answering that. But it is a danger. Um, there is suffering in in everyone's life. I mean, here in Australia, my niece died of six year old died of cancer last year. Um, people have broken families, broken homes, um, addiction problems. There's different kinds of suffering in Australia, but they'll, they're so physically comfortable perhaps, they'll use physical suffering as an excuse not to believe in a God. Whereas C.S. Lewis used to say that um, suffering is God's megaphone to the world, saying look up, you know, look for something beyond this world, um, look to the next and where I am. So do you think those two things have to go together, What's being that? physically comfortable and neglecting God? No, no, not at all. But it's, uh, as Christ said, it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven uh, than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So the poor in Africa, the physically poor, uh, people say that they're spiritually rich and um, often the materially rich are often spiritually poor. And that's at least in my experience. But uh, I'm thankful that there are a number of um, rich Christians who are also very generous because that's been helping us do our work. Without them, we couldn't have, have done what we've done. Andrew and his family came home to Australia last year, but he's far from done with his work improving maternal health in Africa. So in 2009, I started a charity with my father called the Barbara May Foundation, which is um, a tax-deductible charity in Australia. And we started it to raise money for the fistula work that we're doing outside of Ethiopia. So Catherine Hamlin, her organization is still doing Ethiopia. We wanted to take it further afield. And we also started it to try and prevent fistula by building maternity hospitals. So uh, last year, with our rural network in Afar and our three maternity hospitals that we've built so far, uh, we delivered 16,000 ladies. And... Um, with much, much lower maternal deaths and complications than far lower than the national averages. So we're very, very thankful for that. So while I'm in Australia, I, I administer our projects. So we've got seven fistula projects um, in Ethiopia. We've got our fistula project in Afar in Ethiopia, where the Hamlins can't reach. Uh, one in South Sudan, two in Uganda, two in Tanzania, and one in Nepal, actually. Uh, so I've reduced that a lot. I used to be working in a lot more African countries when I was there, but I can't physically do that from here. And then we've got our maternal work. So we've been upgrading uh, five or six government um, maternity hospitals and running them for up to three years and handing them back, and we've built our own maternity hospitals. We've just been given land in South Sudan to build another maternity hospital. So I'm back in Australia you know, trying to raise money for that. We're <laughs> still trying to consolidate the funds to to run all the projects that we've got now um, before taking on something new. And then I travel back to Africa. So last year I traveled back seven times. This year is probably going to be five times uh, to teach and operate in our various sites. So I'm going again in two weeks' time. Got back two weeks ago <laughs> and going back again in, oh, in two weeks' spend time. Spent a lot of time on planes. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the hope? What's the goal? The goal is that no women should have to go through the suffering and, and get a fistula or face death in childbirth. So it has been estimated that to stop fistulas from happening in Africa and, and women dying in labour, that we need to build around 2,000 obstetric units. So we've done three. Okay. Yeah, we've got 1,997 to go. <laughs> Counting down. Counting down. We're on our way. That was a repeat of the episode, Missionary Doctor. The book, inspired by the episode, is A Doctor in Africa. It's out now through Pan Macmillan. Next week. I think that's the thing that really needs to be emphasised in consent, isn't it? Is that everyone is responsible for and can make decisions about how they express themselves, physically, sexually, whatever it is, and should do that in cooperation and with the consent of anyone that they're engaging with.